This podcast is sponsored by 10 of those. If you're at the recent T4G conference, you probably went to the bookstore. It was run by 10 They want to serve the local church by bringing the best books from across the publishers at super low prices to conferences and churches across America. So if you're involved in running a conference or perhaps you have a women's retreat coming up or a church anniversary weekend, invite 10 to provide a pop-up bookstore. There is no charge for them to come. They'll recommend resources and serve you really well, taking care of all the stock, the cash register, sales tax, etc. And they come for conferences and churches of 300 people or more. They can also help you if you're doing things online. They can provide you with a customized online bookstore for your church, and there's no charge for that either. Email their team to get your bookstore set up. That's sales.us at 10 Sales.us at 10 Baptist 21 is a pastor-led voice for Southern Baptists in the 21st century. The B21 podcast will discuss current issues in the SBC with Southern Baptist church leaders. To check out more resources, visit us at baptist21.com. Well, welcome to the Baptist 21 podcast, where we have conversations about what it means to be Baptist in the 21st century. And on today's podcast, we're discussing one of the most important things going on in the SBC right now, probably the most important thing, uh, that being the work of the Sexual Abuse Task Force uh, that was formed by vote of the SBC Messengers last fall. Uh, we're also talking about this in light of the release of God's uh, Guidepost Report and then the subsequent recommendations of the task force, which were le- released yesterday as of our recording. Uh, we hope to post this today. Um, and so in light of that report, I have with me today, uh, Bruce Frank, the chairman of the task force, pastor of Biltmore Baptist Church in Asheville, North Carolina, and also Marshall Blaylock, pastor of uh, the oldest Southern Baptist Church, uh, that being First Baptist Charleston. And brothers, I just appreciate you guys taking time to be on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Nate. Thanks a lot. Uh, Before we jump in, we do have a Baptist 21 panel coming up at the SBC. This will figure prominently. This uh, this topic will figure prominently in that. Uh, You can still sign up. That'll be on the Tuesday morning before the convention starts. And so you can find out information about that on our social media channels on our website. Brothers, normally when I have guys on for the first time, I ask bio questions to get to know you. uh, But just because the importance of the topic and the the time uh, sensitivity, I just want to jump in, but hope to maybe have you brothers on in future days and, and get to know you better. Uh, and ask some some personal questions so so our listeners can can know more about you. But I do think it's an important one for us just to jump in. And, and before we do, let me just give kind of an overview of where I'm trying to head with the questions. So first, I want to see if we can do a brief overview of events kind of leading up to today. Uh, then talk about maybe some of the thorny issues on the road to where we've gotten to here, connected to the will of the messengers, the work of the executive committee, waiving privilege, and so forth. Uh, then review and unpack a little bit of the report itself, but also primarily the recommendations that you guys released yesterday uh, that will be brought to the floor of the SBC. Then I want to discuss what is that afternoon session going to look like of the SBC? How will this be presented and and so forth uh, before asking some questions surrounding the response to the recommendations and then uh, some final thoughts. So that's kind of the direction we're going, uh, listeners. So I just want to jump in there, guys, for listeners, you know, some of our listeners, they, they're not always as plugged in uh, to everything going on in the SBC. They, they show up at the convention, they vote, they go home. They're not really on social media. They may not even follow Baptist Press. So for our listeners who may not be as plugged in and haven't followed much of what's unfolded since last year's SBC, would either of you guys want to give just a brief recap of kind of what happened in Nashville and how we've kind of gotten to what happened yesterday, just some of the significant events along the way. I, I can throw that to either one of you, but if this one wants to jump in and give a brief overview, that'd be great. Marshall, you want to take that one? I'll start and maybe you can finish for us. So, so in Nashville, something unprecedented happened. Grant Gaines and Ronnie Parrott made a motion to create a task force to hire an independent firm to investigate uh, the executive committee over the past 20 years to see if there were times when executive committee mishandled sexual abuse claims and sexual abuse survivors. And uh, it was getting ready to be referred to the executive committee or some other spot when um, one of the messengers came forward and said, we want to ask the convention to overrule the motion to, to refer it and to vote on it right then and there. And it was unprecedented to have that happen. And 
what took place was the vast majority of people voted, yes, we want to vote on this and want this to happen. And uh, I was there, had no idea at the time, and I'm sure Bruce didn't either, that this would involve the two of us and the other folks on the task force. But we, we saw the need for it and we voted for it. And uh, a little while later, when uh, President Lytton uh, appointed the task force, he asked the two of us, along with seven others, to be involved in this. And it's nothing that we looked for. Uh, I certainly sought out uh, something I never dreamed we'd be involved in. And yet um, we believed it was the right thing to, to do. And so uh, the task force got together in, in August and began to work. And our first order of business was to get a contract with a firm that could do this. We chose Guidepost. Did a lot of research on this. There are only certain companies that could do it. We felt like Guidepost was the best one to do it in this particular case. And we presented the contract to the executive committee. And there was some minor controversy on the front end of that because uh, the convention had voted that the investigation would include waiving attorney-client privilege on the part of the executive committee. And the executive committee uh, leadership at the time I didn't believe that was in the best interest of the committee itself and the convention. And so uh, there was a debate about whether to, to waive privilege, but we, the task force believed the messengers asked to do that. And so we asked them to do so. Um, and the, to, to, to sum it all up, it took three different votes and it, it took a lot of uh, outside uh, pressure, I suppose is the way to put it. But the executive committee voted to waive privilege um, really over the objections of its leadership. And it was the right thing to do because the messengers asked to do it. And uh, so with that, we got a little bit. If I remember correctly, that was even a point of order from the platform that was overruled by the messengers of asking for this. Uh, I mean, I don't remember all the full procedures of it, but there was a call from the floor to basically say, no, this is what we're asking for. Yeah, there was there was no doubt what the messengers had asked for. That's for sure. And the question was whether the executive committee was going to 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 go by what the messengers asked to do or what uh, their legal counsel was telling them to do. And in the end, they 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 did what we thought was the right thing. Truth is, now looking back on it, uh, had that vote not taken place, uh, much of the information that's in the task force uh, guidepost report wouldn't be there. Yeah. And so it's it was important to do that. It was the right thing. And people wonder, should we have done this? And one of the questions people ask is, do you, because most lawyers would say you never waive attorney client privilege. Right. Um, but we discussed that with a number of lawyers, the guidepost folks, almost all of them are attorneys as well. And the answer was, if you really want to know what happened, if you really want to know the truth of a matter, then. Um, and you're not afraid of finding the truth, then waiving privilege is the best way to do it. And it's it's not routinely done, but it has been done in in corporate settings, secular corporate settings, when a company decided, no, we really want to know the truth. And I believe that Southern Baptist really wanted to know the truth. And in this case, um, did the right thing to discover the truth. And it's also true that um, people... Uh, when when all this was taking place, people were wondering, is this the is this the right thing? But again, you go back to we 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 believe that telling the truth is always the right thing. And to to willingly open the book, so to speak, was saying we want to discover what the facts are, but also we're not afraid to tell the truth here. And if you want everything to come to light, that's that's the biblical thing to do. So so the, I was pleased the executive committee uh, ended up uh, on round three, at least, uh, making the vote to do so. And we got a late start because of the delay. It took a while longer than it should have. Uh, but nonetheless, we got the start and guideposts began going to work. And what our task force did during that season was we did all we could to learn as much as we could about the issue and about uh, what's going on in churches today. And um, so we had different meetings to, to meet with and hear from survivors of sex abuse. And those were heartbreaking moments. I mean, it's just you. I, there are things and Bruce would say the same thing. There are things we learned that we wish we never knew. Hmm. 
we wish had never happened. It's, it's heartbreaking. And yet, um, it's important to know these things. And if you're a pastor today, uh, you need, there, there's a lot about this you need to understand because people in your church, maybe not, it didn't happen at church in some cases, but 25% of the women in your church by the age of 25 have been sexually abused in some way, shape, or form. And it's heartbreaking. I didn't even, had no idea of this. So we've learned all, all sorts of, of uh, important truths about sexual abuse and how it happens and, and takes, takes place. So we did our work there and then Guidepost is doing their work. And then uh, two weeks ago, Guidepost sent their investigative report and we published it uh, May 22nd. And um, then we published our uh, recommendations to go to the convention in Anaheim. Uh, it'll t- the, our report takes place Tuesday afternoon. It's the first major thing on the session Tuesday afternoon. So that's our report. comes out then. Bruce, anything you'd like to add there, brother? No, that's a great synopsis. Um, you know, and I would say both Marshall and I, we, this was a massive learning curve over the last nine months in um, a bunch of, a bunch of smaller ways, polity and otherwise, but the, the biggest learning curve for sure was just the whole area of sexual abuse. It's a, it's not just a church issue. It's, it's certainly a cultural issue that does not stop just because a steeple's on the, the building. And um, uh, the report, you know, we could, you, as we learned, you could kind of see, all right, we probably have some systemic or systematic issues, but we didn't know. I mean, again, it was an independent third party. So a lot of this stuff was, you know, we were getting just literally a week before, um, you know, we, we guidepost again, I can't say enough about, uh, about them. They did a phenomenal job in a difficult situation in a very shortened time frame uh, at, uh, I don't know if I guess this is okay, but I, they, I will just say they, they ate a lot of money to stay within our budget hmm. because they believed in what we were trying to, I guess I'm not, I don't question. I'm, I'm very appreciative of it. Um, but, hmm. but so I, I can't speak well enough. They did a, they did a phenomenal job in a difficult situation. I think their work product was top, super top notch, not surprisingly, but as Marshall said, also, there's not that many people, there's not that many firms around that had all the things, everything from attorneys to PIs, all the licenses, the manpower to go through 20 years of, I don't even know how many people that is, 20 years and nine months mm. with the hundreds of interviews, five terabytes of information, as well as the continued, you know, there was, even though it got passed in, I guess, September, the, all the, you know, and technically it, they got to push on. It's not like everybody was willingly wanting to cooperate. So they, they just did, they did a, they did a good, very pleased with guidepost. Before we kind of get into some more, go ahead, Marshall. Sorry. Brother. Throw a couple of things out that Bruce is not going to tell you. One, Bruce was the perfect leader for this task force and the interactions we had with the executive committee, Bruce did a great job for us. One of the things Bruce decided on at the very beginning and the task force all agreed was that everything we do would be transparent. So every time we met, we put out a statement, put it on our website saying, this is what we did and this is why we did it. Uh, when it came to the questions back and forth with the EC, we, we put all the information that we knew and put it out there. We didn't hide a thing. That was, that was part of what we tried to do all the way through. And that was Bruce's leadership on that. And the other piece that Bruce put out is the very first meeting we had. The very first sentence that Bruce spoke was Micah chapter six, verse eight. Mm-hmm. That's going to be our, 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 our walking uh, identity as a task force. And it doesn't say to like justice, doesn't say to support justice, generally speaking, doesn't say to, uh, to give lip service to justice. It says do justice. Mm-hmm. It says to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. And there's no other way to walk with God. And if you walk through what we heard and saw in the sex abuse crisis, actually, that's going on right now, it'll humble you. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was, that was the very beginning that we're going to do justice. We're going to love mercy. We're going to walk humbly with God. And that was in large measure, Bruce's leadership walking us through the whole process. Mm-hmm. Any, any other things that stood out just in not, I don't want to get yet into the recommendations. I want to talk about that. And even some, some things that y'all have already mentioned briefly, but any other things that stood out 
in this whole course of basically a year about about Southern Baptist, about the process, uh, anything just that's striking kind of to your mind when I ask that question? You know, one of the encouraging things uh, that we saw, as you mentioned back in Nashville, because uh, especially when the report came out, one of the questions almost every reporter asked me was, what do you think the resolve is by the messengers to actually make change? And it's, you know, and to some degree yet to be determined, it'll be determined in about 10 days. But I go, I think it's strong. They showed it, as Marshall mentioned, and when's the last time you had that much of an overwhelming, well, overriding first, overriding some some uh, things that were going to be kind of detours. So overriding and then overwhelming on such a contentious issue. So I say that to say one of the good things, I think, is just the overwhelming resolve of your average Southern Baptist to do what's right. It's like, we're going to get this right. We're going to spend what's necessary to make it, you know, to, to do that. Uh, I know Baptists are kind of a weird family. I mean, you got, again, 48,000 churches or whatever of all different pipes. Everybody can get to the microphone. I mean, it's, you know, it's a big family reunion of, and you got crazy uncles and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, by and large, I can't remember who said it, maybe Adam White or somebody said it. It's like Baptist eventually it takes a while, but usually they do the right thing in the end. And so I, I'm thinking that's going to happen. My, my deal to the reporters is Anaheim's yet to happen. But if the track record is, you know, if you look at the track record, the resolve, uh, even the even the initial response to the report, generally speaking, 90 percent uh, is that what you kind of wanted. It's that grief, kind of righteous indignation, uh, a, a resolve to as best we can make it right um, and make things better. So that part has been, you know, encouraging from people I, I never knew. And then the heroes in all this stuff, Nate, for sure. Uh, you know, the messengers to some degree, but by far are the survivors who, who did not throw the towel in and just continue to push, continue to push, continue to have faith in Jesus, continue to, you know, they, the, those are the ones, because, you know, when you hear their stories, you're like, there would have been, uh, I mean, I, I, there's no, I don't have anywhere remotely that resolve that they had to uh, just stay with it, uh, love God, love justice. And so they, they're the, they're the heroes uh, in this whole thing. That's helpful. Yeah. I, I know I've heard Dr. Moeller say that before it, about, uh, we normally get things right. I mean, it's 15 years I've been going to the SBC. I don't remember the messengers overruling the platform in that way, uh, or at least speaking in that way. Uh, and it could just be bad recollection. I don't know. But that was encouraging because I think on this topic in particular, that the the resolve of the messenger, I think it's really well put. Uh, Pastor Blaylock, anything you would add there? Yeah, I, I agree with Bruce about the, the survivors because we heard <laughs> many of them came and met with us in person and told their stories and telling their stories is almost like reliving it. It's just, it's not easy to do, but it was moving to see how they were showing courage and strength in ways that, that I just can't imagine. Mm -hmm. uh, the other, the other piece that, uh, that I was a little surprised about was after the convention appointed us to this national task force, state conventions met in the fall and many of them, actually most of them, appointed state task forces. And so uh, one of the things that, that we did as a, as a task force is invite them, uh, all their representatives from all the states, even the ones that didn't elect a task force, we invited them to, uh, to gather in Nashville on April 4th. And that was a really powerful meeting because what we saw was this groundswell all across the, the convention of leaders wanting to say, how can we help churches to, to, treat this issue as it should be to minister well to survivors and then prevent it from ever happening. That, that's been one of the real blessings. And so we, we've, we've seen uh, sort of this groundswell that's come throughout the whole convention uh, to, to work on this. And that's what it's going to take. This is what we decide in Anaheim is important, but what happens in your local church and your local association, your local state convention, those are, are at the front lines of where it's really going to change. Yeah. And that's, and that, that would accord with our polity as well as where we think the primary uh, vehicle the Lord's using to accomplish his, his purposes. And so it, it has to be a local church issue. It's as well said. 
Uh, I had intended to ask a question around the complexities of waiving uh, privilege. You guys have already talked about that and, and, and been very helpful. Again, it's so odd. Some have, have kind of said the platform controls things, but at least in that, that would be disingenuous to say that was the case last year. Um, and so maybe some follow-up questions to that. You know, you know opinion, <laughs> Southern Baptists all have all kinds of opinions. Opinions seem to be forming, uh, and if you kind of talk maybe more of the extremes, you know, some are kind of saying we must care about legalities in dealing with uh, these heinous issues, while others seem to be saying we should not care about legalities at all. Uh, what are your thoughts to those sentiments and kind of how has the task force approached those kind of wide varying opinions about particularly what we open ourselves up to, the legalities and, and those sort of questions that are kind of obviously being thrown, uh, certainly on social media, but also in, in print and other places as well? Yeah, and I would say, and, and I'll go first on this, Marshall. I would say, uh, well, I mean, first of all, there are, there are attorneys. We have attorneys that are on the task force, so they think that way anyway. Uh, obviously, Guidepost was full of attorneys. Uh, and then you've got pastors and trauma-informed people, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I would say, uh, I don't remember which article I read, but it was legalities and the legal. I mean, that's part of stewardship. For That is a highway you know, that is a lane that you have to look at. And I think somebody made a good point is, unfortunately, what the investigation showed is it was the only lane. It was the only thing that was looked at. And then, and then you know, like anything, you have some different opinions on legalities. You had attorneys at the uh, meetings in Nashville in the fall that had differing opinions and, uh, you know, and even kind of misrepresentations to say, all right, if you, you know, waiving attorney-client privilege, that was not a blanket waiving of you don't get counsel if you've done something wrong. It was a very specific look back 20 years and open up the books and don't hide, you know, don't put stuff. And we now, we honestly, for at least some people, and I would say, if I don't say it, Marshall's better, a better statesman than I am for sure. Uh, not, there, there were, there was a ton, there is a ton of good people on the EC and not everybody that voted to not waive especially the first couple of times, had nefarious motives. They just either were scared or they had a legal thought that, you know, this would open us up. And, um, you know, but going forward, it is certainly one. I think the thing, the theme that came out uh, early on was, listen, there's really not the liability unless there's some really stuff that is covered up. And so that remains to be seen that, you know, how that gets handled. You know, we do live in a litigious society, so there's no way that you can avoid, you uh, you know, uh, being sued, uh, you know, people can sue you for whatever. Uh, the question is, you know, have you done something negligent? Have you done something wrong? Have you done something that is, you know, that creates liability? You know, those are the questions. So I guess the general thing is it's certainly a lane, but there's uh, there's probably three or four lanes trying to get wise counsel, legal being one of three or four. Historically, when you can look, when you read the report, it really comes across that it was the only lane that was looked at. And one last thing is, is what I think what has happened, my opinion is when we did that and, and, and other attorneys said, painted this picture as well, when that's the only lane, it's sort of like trying to hold a beach ball underwater. And if you, if you, if you do the right steps early, then you can control it. And it's, but if, if you ignore it and keep in the, it keeps getting bigger, it's going to pop up. Mm -hmm. And I think, in a, in, a, in a similar way, you know, the last 20 years, that might have been what happened uh, in the SBC as far as, you know, I mean, God was going to bring this thing to the surface. It was going to be, you know, next year, last year. I mean, it was going to come out because he cares for survivors. He cares to he cares for his church and it, you know, and, and and wants it to be, you know, the best it can be. Marshall, anything you'd add there, brother? Well, one of the things that that we learned that surprised us in the report from Guidepost is that the attorneys for the SBC years ago uh, told us there is a way legally without incurring ascending liability to publish a database of offenders. Mm. And so sometimes even the legal folks weren't listened to <laughs> by some of our leadership in the past. So uh, we want to assure everybody listening that, that the recommendations we have made so to, to, to come to Anaheim, we have vetted these through uh, attorneys that, that 
have considered the question of liability, ascending liability, those kind of things. And so our polity is is bottom up. The local church is is headquarters, I guess, is the way we would say it. And we don't need individual churches wondering whether something we do is going to cause them to have legal liability. Everything we've done, the recommendations we've made, uh, we're told uh, would not create that legal issue for anybody. That's helpful. And, and I, y'all kind of addressed this, but let me just ask it uh, plainly because it is kind of what I see on, you know, online. Uh, is there fear that this could, um, you know, destroy, divide, bankrupt the convention? Again, waiving a privilege, release of the list, creation of a future database. How would you guys respond to that? Again, I, you've kind of addressed it, but maybe just one more time specifically uh, that fear and that consideration. Marshall, maybe I'll come to you first and then. Sure. Um, so it's really interesting how this works because some folks were thinking, okay, so if we hide this stuff, it'll keep us from liability. And our legal counsel was telling us, if you hide it and you know it's capable of creating liability, you're actually increasing your liability. So what we're suggesting is that, that no, let's, let's be honest. Let's be transparent. And if we've done something wrong, we ought to own it. And uh, and so we believe let's operate like Christians ought to operate. We'll just be transparent. We're not going to hide things. If we've done something wrong, we're going to confess it and 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 deal with it openly. And um, one of the interesting pieces is that that uh, there was all these claims that we would lose our insurance and everything else. And and as of today, we still have insurance. And it's it's we believe the insurance company actually would rather us be honest. And to do stuff wrong and hide it, because in the end, that does create greater liability for us. Bruce? Yeah, I mean, I would say the same thing. None of us, none of the three of us are attorneys, but when attorneys look at it, uh, there might be different opinions, if you will. But I'll go back to the original statement is, you know, there's no way to prevent it. But, you know, what has historically been the case uh, in regards to ascending liability has been you know, the autonomy of the local church. So this is mainly a resource, a voluntary resource that helps churches know, hey, is the guy that's coming, uh, you know, that's coming from First Baptist, whatever, you know, is is he a, is he a danger? Because what we have seen is there's two facts. One of them is there is abusers have a high recidivism rate, uh, like 80%. And then secondly, um, there are many examples of a person going from uh, one church to another church that, and again, it, 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 how much did this, you know, how much did this church know, how much did they just suspect all those kind of things. But either way, that's where it kind of comes into what we tried to make a very precise, because I know the question is also about due process and, you know, how do you protect against a false accusation? And that's certainly, that was a, I mean, that was hours of discussion uh, at, at, at different meetings. Um, and long term, you know, long story short, you know, that, that what you see in the motions, as well as the frequently asked questions, you know, there's a, there's a very precise definition of credibly accused. As a matter of fact, at this point, when people have looked at that, the ones that have been very concerned about false accusations, that is like a super big relief for them because they, at least the ones that I've talked to at this point, when they read the definition, like, oh, that, that provides safeguards uh, so that there's not just, you know, tons of accusations at the same time. I think sometimes people are a little bit misinformed when they think, why don't we just use the, why don't we just use the, you know, the, the, the legal deal and not that that's wrong. It's just, it, it's just going to catch a small fraction. If you just do the most conservative of statistics uh, about how many are actually convicted uh, how many uh, of people that are assaulted actually want to go to the authorities? How many, you know, all those things, you know, so the question is, what are the best practices to have a safe, in, you know, environment and to protect people? Uh, that's, you know, that's what this is the attempt to do is trying to take biblical principles of transparency and accountability and those things and put them into, you know, into a method, into a process, uh, you know, so it's, so it can be transferable because here's, I guess I would just say this, like the one thing, I would say the thing that has continued to hit me is because the task force wants to resource. Bottom line is all this stuff is to resource churches to make great decisions. Because churches have made dumb decisions in this area over and over and over again. 
and they're not all heart issues, Nate, there are a lot of them are head issues. Some of them are just like, I get that, you know, you get the phone call, whether it be from a survivor, you get this phone call from church members saying, I saw something, whatever that is. What we've seen repeatedly is that first move, because pastors aren't equipped for this. They're just simply not, uh, or at least, I mean, I had, uh, I had seven years of theological education, and I didn't have one hour of preparation for this. Uh, and they might be adding some in now, but I mean, they, the, the, what, you know, what do you do when you get that? I think that I think the reality hit is if you're in leadership for a decade or so, you're going to get that phone call. And what you do right then and having a resource maybe is like, I don't know what to do. Who do I call? Do I call, get some, you know, is there a trained person? What do I, what do I do? Because if you, if you don't know, sometimes our instinct is wrong. It's like our instinct is either to, well, I mean, you can either, you know, maybe you go to the survivor first and then that can look like you're trying to change the story. I mean, there's just so many bad first steps. And what happens is when we make bad first steps, that circle of damage grows not just to the survivor, but also to the testimony, your testimony. It just, uh, most, a lot of Baptist churches are in small towns, you know, sometimes these are accusations against, you know, a relative or whatever. So again, the whole thing is not, I mean, guidepost had to look and see what we've done wrong, but the recommendations are, and how do you make, how do you make wise God honoring decisions that protect people better and care for people better if, if on those on those times that it, it's going to happen. There are wolves. Wolves at times are going to get there. But all that being said, uh, the main thing is to help us make good decisions. Yeah. So uh, for listeners, sataskforce.net, you can see the recommendations. You can see several other things, the FAQ that's already been mentioned. Uh, so I did want to talk briefly about the recommendations. Um, Marshall, you gave us a good synopsis of where we, how we got here. Can you give us just a brief synopsis? We don't need to go recommendation by recommendation that people can go and read those, but just some of the highlights. And then I'll ask some some questions. Bruce, you brought up kind of the term credible allegation, uh, credibly accused. I'm going to ask some more in-depth questions about that. But uh, yeah, Marshall, any just kind of overview of what the recommendations are? Sure. There are three categories, basically. Recommendations that are, that are more or less challenges and requests to other Baptist entities, not just the EC, um, executive committee, excuse me, don't want to do uh, all the lingo here, but executive committees, EC, but the other institutions that we have, the other entities that we have. So there were recommendations for them that are just requests. We don't have any authority to tell them what to do, but they're to help them do some things that would, that would take proper steps about how to handle sexual abuse. And then we set a section for state conventions. And we're not telling either the entities or the state conventions you're doing it wrong. We're trying to give them the opportunity to look at what we're recommending as a, a, a starting place to help them do right by this. And so we're, we're not don't don't get the impression that these recommendations are because we think they need our help. We're just trying to to offer some some insight that we've learned that may help them. And with the state conventions, we've had the dialogue back and forth. They more or less ask us to put these on paper to help help them. So that's there. And then we have the official motions that, that are actions that we're asking the convention to take. And the first one is to create uh, an implementation task force, because what we learned is we can't, we can't, we had one week between the report coming to us and we had to publish it and with recommendations. And we had some things in mind, but Guidepost had dozens and dozens of possible recommendations that we should consider. And, uh, and you can't get all that done in one, in one convention, one meeting. So what we're asking is that the convention, the new president would appoint a, a task force to implement some of these changes and to work with the credentials committee, to work with the executive committee on, on making some changes. That's the, that's the first big piece. And the second is to create a, what we're calling a, um, a ministry check website, where it's basically the database uh, to, and that whole piece is about trying to help churches be able to report. Uh, if they have someone that's, that they've found to be credibly accused, they report it up and, and they, and so it gets on the list so that, so that people don't go from place to place. Um, so that's, that's the two main 
motions that are coming before us. We know that uh, survivors probably wanted a longer list of motions, um, and uh, we knew that that it was going to take some time to get some of those pieces in, which is why we're asking the convention to have the abuse reform implementation task force to start working on those. This is not studying it some more. It's how to implement it. And we didn't have the bandwidth in terms of time to implement all these things in one meeting. It just was not possible. So so we're not saying we're punting to the future. We're saying, no, there, there's more to be done here that can't be done in one meeting. So let's get what we can get started on right away and and then move toward next year having the next steps go in place and then the next year the next steps it's not going to be solved instantly and uh, and again we have some folks think we're going too far too fast others think you're not going far enough um we it, it's not an easy spot to be but we felt like this gave us the best chance to get one thing done that can be done right away with the uh with the ministry check website and the other is to, to put in place the, the motion to get moving on all the recommendations. This podcast is sponsored by 10 of those. If you're at the recent T4G conference, you probably went to the bookstore. It was run by 10 They want to serve the local church by bringing the best books from across the publishers at super low prices to conferences and churches across America. So if you're involved in running a conference or perhaps you have a women's retreat coming up or a church anniversary weekend, invite 10 to provide a pop-up bookstore. There is no charge for them to come. They'll recommend resources and serve you really well, taking care of all the stock, the cash register, sales tax, etc. And they come for conferences and churches of 300 people or more. They can also help you if you're doing things online. They can provide you with a customized online bookstore for your church, and there's no charge for that either. Email their team to get your bookstore set up. That's sales.us at 10 Sales.us at 10 so basic overview, uh, two main recommendations outside of trying to help both Baptist entities and state conventions on how to um, implement things that will train for the future. Uh, again, read those at the task force website, but going to create a desire to create this uh, task force. So again, this is a beginning spot, not an ending spot uh, to implement more. And then this ministry check website Um I want to ask a couple of probing questions on that because that's the the majority of the questions that even were sent to us and that I've been seeing kind of floating. I'm going to ask kind of a big question. I hope it's not too rambling, but kind of set the set the parameters on this a little bit. Uh, most of the things we've received have, have revolved around the idea of both credibly accused and preponderance of evidence. Uh, you guys actually line this out in a footnote. Uh, it actually seems like a wise threshold in some sense. I'm not, again, I'm not a lawyer, but there are three stipulations to what is considered a credible, uh, credible accusation. There are some, obviously, who worry. Again, we've talked about some of this already. Even the Wall Street Journal released an article warning against making mistakes they allege the Catholic Church made. They, the title of that article was something like trampling on the rights of the accused. So in light of kind of credibly accused preponderance of evidence, um, speak to that. Uh, you guys have, have looked at that, obviously made this recommendation there's a lot of worry and concern. Why use of that language? Why those three categories? And anything else you want to say to credibly accuse and preponderance of evidence? Now I might ask some follow-ups. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the the, the concerns were the concerns that used up hours and hours and hours. Uh, and you had uh, you, you, if you look around the table of the task force, you had a very eclectic group uh, in regards to the you know you had four pastors. You had two attorneys. Uh, you had a couple of very, very trauma-informed at work for, with abuse. So you had a wide range of perspectives coming at it, and and that was certainly the the one that's been being looked at and talked. To, you know, as, as you look in the report, that was something that uh, Jordan Gunther said is was doable uh, back in two thousand and seven, and they got that from uh, one of the conventions in Texas to say this is a doable. This is a, and I'm not saying it's not messy. It, it certainly it certainly is messy. My brother's a, a congressman in, in Texas, and and he's he and I were talking about it, and so and he does a lot with like the foster care system and stuff, and he's like, okay, all that's it is certainly messy. So there's nothing easy about this, but is it worth it? It certainly certainly is. And, and so what we tried to do with the with with the language here was to look at at both sides, and you know, if you're a survivor, you're like. 
we're having to still do there, you know, there is definitely protection on uh, a false accusation. I mean, there's definitely that the wall street journal article, actually, if I believe if it's the same one was an opinion piece that actually used language that was before we put the report out. And so, you know, it was, it was, everybody's got an opinion and that was an opinion that was, that was put out. I would say when you, if you look at the footnotes and all of that, the credibly accused does a number of safeguards for that and yet still doable for churches to use um, um, for uh, people who with bad intentions to be brought to the attention. So they do not just go, do what they have been doing, which is because that's the part that's unacceptable. I mean, it's certainly you got to have due process, so to speak, in regards to false accusations. And that's a that's a and that again, I would say that was hours of discussion because again, you got four pastors in there as well that know that a false accusation can severely hurt your ministry. Um, and so you had that whole perspective. How do you protect against it? But then the the other side, which is, you know, arguably more important, is like, what about the, you know, what about the person that is credibly accused? And and how do you then protect that person uh, from not going and, you know, harming, you know, down the street. So, you know, that is the balance, but we feel like it's the people I've talked to for the most part, especially ones that look at it parliamentary wise and legal wise are like, that's it. You're trying, you're threading the needle as good as you can. Marshall, I want to hear what you think that the, the credibly accused categories are one, the person's, the abuser's actually been convicted. So that's one. The other is uh, there's been a civil um, action that they've been obviously it's been brought against them. So that's a, in a court of law. And the third is a, um, a confession in a non um, privileged setting. I, w- I want to ask in a second, what, give an example of that. Um, but uh, Marshall, I want to hear what you're saying, hear, hear what you have to say, but that's the threshold that the uh, task force is recommending. The whole deal on, on uh, credibly accused. Some of this is legal language. And I talk to pastors and they, so, and they say, well, if, if it's uh a preponderance of the evidence, and it's and it means more likely than not. All those are legal terms, and so if you were to go and have a civil trial, civil trial would decide something on the basis of the preponderance of evidence. And so, if if you have a a, a survivor who says that someone sexually abused them, and you bring in an independent um, expert firm to help you to understand whether what's really happened. It's not, it's not like, um, you have, you have Barney coming with a, a, a bullet in his pocket and, and doing a, a crummy investigation. This, this is, you, you want to have people that are credible to be able to, to determine what actually happened. And it, it's not a court of law, but it, it, the standard is a civil court of law. And, and we've, we've run this by, our attorneys, my personal attorneys here in Charleston, and said, this is legal language. And there's no, you, this is the kind of language you have to use in something like this. And this is, this is something that should be not, not a concern to somebody who's wondering about due process. And for those under 40 that are listening, uh, the, the analogy or the illustration that Marshall just used, you just need to Google the Andy Griffith show about Barney and his bullets. So just, again, just if you don't know that. I'm right on the threshold. I'm right on the line where I knew what he was talking about. Andy, a great illustration. I should have realized where I was. I apologize. Millennials, millennials, just the Andy Griffith show. If this was B61, I would have been right online. (laughs) Yeah, well, the Baptist 21 group is getting older every year. So uh, (laughs) that is true of all of us. The preponderance of evidence, Marshall, to what you were saying. So, is that like a fifty-one percent type thing? I mean, again, I'm thinking OJ's con- OJ is not convicted in court, probably guilty. Maybe I don't know if this is a good or bad example, but he is. He is in the civil uh, case. He is. There is a preponderance of evidence to think he he could have convicted. He, he may had did convict or did uh, kill his wife and um, Goldman. So help me think through that as you were talking to your attorneys, the preponderance of evidence, again, a lot of pastors. And then I want to ask a separate question about how you would counsel pastors to even add names to this list. But first, the preponderance of evidence. I think that is probably the one that people are the most uh, either they're just confused on or they have questions about. 
again, it's legal terminology and you probably better off asking an attorney to interpret all this. But from what they told me, it's, it's, there's a reasonable person who's an expert in the field, who's done these kind of investigation. Do they, do they determine that this is something that is credible? And that's mm-hmm. what they're determining. And, and it has to, the weight's got to be on, this is true. This is a, a, an allegation that, that, that we believe is true. And 5149, I think is not a good, a good way of looking at it. I don't think that's the way to look at it. It's, 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 it's a preponderance of the evidence. It's, it's enough that a credible person could say, we believe these allegations are true. But in the way y'all worded, that would have to be in a civil, a civil trial setting, right? Well, it would be, it would be the language comes from a civil trial setting, although we're not suggesting everybody has to to go to a civil trial. We're borrowing the language of a civil trial setting. And And that would be determined by this this third party that y'all are recommending. Any idea on the set, on the face of it, at least initially who y'all think that might be, or is that still very much up in the air? Every church would choose their own. We're not telling anybody what to do there. Um, I was, and, and again, this is just me now, not not anybody else. But I was hoping that state conventions would be able to identify um, experts in the field that might be members of the churches in the state convention and have them volunteer to do these kinds of things and just pay their expenses, something like that. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't be uh, bringing in somebody from D.C. or New York to come do a, uh, an investigation. And there, there are firms that could do that uh, locally, I'm sure. Uh, but I was hoping you could even create a, a, a volunteer group that could do something like that in a state committee. In, in the task force, one of the things, the new task force would, one of their jobs is to, how do they resource associations and churches with names and resources of people who can do that? Because really it's just trying to take it out of the hands of the, you know, if it ever gets there, because these are going to be fairly rare if you just do the numbers that get to this state. So the question is, I mean, get to the part where you're fact checking and preponderance of evidence and all of that, you know, um, because if somebody's been as you can look at those deals, if they've been, if they've been, uh, process, you know, not the easy ones, but the ones when you can do a Google search and see this guy got convicted of molesting a child, that's, there is no fact checking. that has to be done. It's been done, but it's when it's that, okay, we got to look into this further. Uh, then somebody from the outside can come in and help because churches are just, they're just not equipped to do that. Credentials committee is not equipped to do that. Um, but so again, it takes a while to get there, but again, what we're trying to avoid is, uh, because again, churches historically have quietly fired people, you know, uh, and then that person, and then they've been scared to be sued or whatever. And they'll say, you know, they'll get the call and they'll just typically say, well, at max, what they've been told is he's not eligible for rehire. You know, maybe they didn't know for sure, but man, three parents came and, you know, told them that, man, he was being affectionate with this person and, you know, blah, 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 blah you know, and all those things, and then they just get pushed down to the next church. And then, and then by the third church, then they maybe get in, then they get arrested. But the damage that has been done in the previous 10 years is incalculable. So that's, that's, that's the have to, to get it done. So this is a, this is as precise as we can get to deal with a messy situation, but it's messy that it has to be dealt with. Yeah. You guys have been kind with your time. I'd love to ask Three more questions, if possible. Yeah. I want to correct one thing, and that is the Credentials Committee will have an investigator firm that they will choose if it rises to the level that they're doing an assessment for somebody. Yeah. Yeah. When I was talking about local churches, local churches may want to have an outside firm help them do this process. They would have their own choice there. So there are two, two different levels of this, and I don't want to miss inform anybody about that but to put a name on the ministry check website that would be a third party that would have to that would be selected by you guys or by this this uh, next credentials committee would have to select that yes. okay that that's that's helpful uh so they would have the ones to select this third party that would then allow names to be put on the ministry check website that's not the only way i would say just for your listeners if they'll go to that second question um really the second and third questions on the FAQs, how is the ministry check website supposed to work? There's like a whole paragraph. And then the next one is, what does it mean to be credibly accused? Those both go together. Every And it's, there's only two paragraphs, but every word counts yeah. in regards to, and that's where we kind of used some of it as far as um, 
uh, you know, third parties, uh, you know, what happens if they've been, you know, what are the, what's the standard convicted in a court of law, you know, confession, that kind of stuff. So again, not to get it, it is in the, we made it as brief as we could, but even as you can see, as brief as all this stuff is, it's easy to kind of get, okay, get your hand around it. Uh, Marshall and I've had nine months to, and it's, you know, it's, it's not easy reading, but the, the perp, that's actually why a lot of it is like, all right, it's just two and a half pages. Um, but for your average Baptist, it's like what we need them to see is the big picture. And the big picture is we have to stop the recidivism of going from church to church. The yep. best way to do that is communication between churches that basically, okay, what do, how do I know if this guy has been in trouble before with a minor? Yeah. If they weren't arrested, which is a very small percentage. And then also, how do we make sure that Pastor John does not get falsely accused? That's what those are the two guardrails that this is attempting to do. That's helpful. I, I want to ask just a couple more questions. Um, so what's next? This this is probably well, how is the Tuesday afternoon session, which is going to be the first thing of business on Tuesday afternoon. How is that going to look? Uh, for those that are just kind of have been messengers maybe one time, what's that time going to look like as far as what's, how's it going to look as far as discussion, debate, and voting? There's an hour that's given to it. There'll be, generally speaking, maybe 10 to 15 minutes, let's say 10 to 20 max to set it up. Here's where we've been. Here's where we're going. Here's what these are for, kind of the rationale. And then there'll be approximately 40 minutes then to pass these two recommendations and all that goes along with Baptist polity as far as, uh, you know, potential amendments, speaking to it, uh, questions, et cetera, et cetera. And then there'll be a vote at the end to accept the recommendations. Yeah, there'll be a vote kind of, I guess, whenever, you know, whenever the process has worked its way through. Somebody calls for the question. Yeah. Yeah. Marshall, anything you'd add there? No, I think the, the, the first visual is going to be Bruce coming down off a mountain with tablets. I think that's the first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so for our listeners that are maybe new, so there will be, uh, this will be presented from the task force on the platform. There will be a chance for discussion from the floor at the microphones. There will be chances even for amendments. Uh, and then there will be lots of different things about our polity. You can listen to previous podcasts but it'll be handled in much the same way as, as other things that we've done in this, in this vein. So uh, that again, Tuesday afternoon, be in the room for that, for that time. Uh, brothers, just two more questions. Uh, one is, me. If somebody really believes that something, if somebody, one of your listeners believes that somebody, that there needs to be a change, please tell us ahead of time. It may be that we can, that we can include your change or, or at least answer your, your concern before the meeting. And I'd rather us have a chance to reasonably talk about it, think about it, than to be on the floor with the clock running, trying to figure out how to do this. Yeah, that's, that's a good word. That's a good word for our own personal church business meetings as well. Uh, that would be good counsel. Uh, brothers, there's been obviously strong rec reactions to both what happened in Nashville, to the BC work, and even to the release of the recommendations yesterday. Um, I would love any of your guys' thoughts. One of the presidential candidates, Tom Askell, wrote in a tweet, uh, I'm reading through these task force recommendations for SBC 2022 uh, and looking for any scripture references, and I can't find one, uh, not even in the rationales, as I simply overlooked them. How would you guys respond to that tweet? Well, I, I, right or wrong, I, I did respond to the tweet. Um, I took it as a rhetorical question. I actually, I, I gave Tom, my, I, I, I had Tom's cell phone. I did not think he had mine. So I actually sent him my cell phone yesterday. Uh, if he wanted to dialogue about it, I took it as a rhetorical question or making a point that this is not scriptural. And so, uh, honestly, I don't think we'd ever thought that especially pastors would need, uh, scriptures on abuse and justice and protecting the vulnerable. I might have misread it, uh, but what we will do is, you know, in the in the days ahead, you know, we'll just take a, a concordance or we'll just work through it. We will have, we'll put, there's, there's, uh, I mean, I don't even know what, things like, again, uh, repentance, abuse, 
transparency, accountability, counsel. I mean, there's probably even those recommendations, seven different biblical principles that you will put, you can put who knows how many verses under, but if that's helpful, um, truly helpful. Uh, and I think it will be for some people, uh, we will, we're going to put that out uh, just to, uh, obviously we, uh, one thing that's helpful is guidepost does not have any standing in our convention. The task force, which is made up of nine followers of Jesus, all strong Bible believers, uh, that's who is making these recommendations. So this is not an outs. The this is not some secular. You know, for these are this is the convention's representatives making these from a biblical perspective. Whether we should have added an appendix of all the scriptures, maybe that was my mistake. But uh, we'll we'll write that mistake and and we'll put. There's plenty of scriptures that we will be adding in the days ahead for those that would like to look at them. And, and what Bruce is not telling you is that before we published any of these, even before we received the report from Guidepost, we prepared a resolution that we sent to the resolutions committee. And that resolution is the biblical basis for everything we've learned and are, are recommending going forward. And so we, we, we were sort of honor bound not to release the resolution because it's in the hands of the resolutions committee. But that is our, our whole rationale. And it was the first thing we did before any of these recommendations came down. And what you have in the recommendations section is just the wording of the motion. It's very specific. And, but the, the rationale, the biblical basis for all this is in the resolution. And it's the first thing we did, not the last thing we did after the fact. It's the first thing we did. And it's a little disappointing that that um, the way it was worded, the question was, was really not ideal, in my opinion. But if they knew the whole story, they wouldn't have asked the question. Brothers, let me get you guys out of here on, on this question. Appreciate your candor. And um, you guys are both pastors, and y'all had a, basically a year of, of one hearing um, from survivors, dealing with all the, the stuff that's going on with the report and all that. Um, it, it kind of asking twofold. One, you know, uh, Bruce, you said we want to be very careful not to falsely accuse Pastor, you know, John. At the same time, we need to be vigilant in caring for survivors and obviously um, stopping abusers, uh, doing all we can to bring justice in that situation. So just as you think about putting names on a ministry checklist, as you think about pastors receiving potential accusations and wrestling through, is this credible? Is this preponderance of evidence, even thinking about First Timothy 5 and needing to have multiple witnesses. What is counsel for brothers as they may hear things who may be wrestling with head and heart? They know this person. They don't want to think this is credible, but they also don't want to falsely accuse. So just some pastoral counsel as far as to have eyes to see what's going on, but to also be wise in how you would approach, one, bringing forward credible allegations, uh, even potentially putting names on a list and so forth. You guys, I think, understand what the question I'm asking just love some pastoral counsel for particularly the pastors on, on calls like this, but also ministry leaders, as you think through those two different kind of sides of this, this conversation. Marsha, you want to start that one? And I'll follow up. A couple things. One, and instincts of a pastor. Um, when you have someone who comes forward and says, this happened, your, part of your instinct is you're a pastor. You want to protect your people. You want to protect the church. You want to protect the name of the church. All these things are out there. You got to think about those things. And what we're hoping that our report can help people do is to think wisely about all of this. And so um, we're, not, we're not suggesting that I'm going to decide whether Pastor Jones across town is guilty of something. That His church is going to have to help him do that. And and maybe the association helps that church help figure that out. But I'm not policing everybody in, in town. That's not, that's not what we're suggesting should happen. What we're suggesting is that people need to take seriously any allegations made, any, any claim that's made on sex abuse, and to deal wisely with it. Uh, one story that's sort of off the subject, you're, the question you're asking, but it's on the subject itself, is um, 
I, I teach a class of young adults, a Bible study. And one of the young women, we were talking about this issue and she came and she told me afterwards that she had been sexually assaulted by a, a fellow BCM student. Hmm. And, uh, she, she said, uh, um, that being at our, our church and having people care about her has, has helped, helped her so much. But the saddest word she told me was that her father's a pastor out of town. And when she told her father what happened to her, her father's first words to her were, those kinds of things don't happen when you're walking with Jesus. Hmm. He, he blamed his own daughter. Instinct has got to be to care about the person who's been wounded so deeply. And that college girl, young woman, was wounded more deeply by her father mm. than by the abuser in some ways. Mm. Instincts have got to change. Culture's got to change. You've got to hear these things differently. And um, so my heart breaks for uh, pastors when this comes your way, but you can, you, we have to make sure we are hearing and doing the right things and, and caring for people that are deeply wounded. That's what we hope happens. And again, I just to echo what uh, what Marshall was saying. Uh, you know, this is a this is a cultural issue. This has been a cultural issue for all time, but it's obviously accelerated in the last you know twenty years or so, whatever. However, you want to to do that. Honestly, I think as a as a pastor, you have to have you know he was talking about instincts, but instincts come for a lot of instincts come from information and learning. And being a student, I mean, it's your, if you, you know, just take the biblical one, how do I take care of these sheep? You know, part of it is, you know, kind of knowing, you know, uh, who's after them, knowing where to help them grow. It even helps your preaching. I mean, one of the things that, you know, you're, you're working on is like, all right, how do I take the gospel and apply it? And again, not that everybody is that, is, is that, but, every, you know, whether it be their identity in Christ, whether it be, uh, you know, it's not what it's not what the world says about you. It's it's what Jesus says about you. Uh, again, I'm trying to be careful. Um, I just go back to the earlier statement. At least my instincts, pastors' instincts, especially if you're like a certain personality type, I, I think pastors at times we love we love the Damascus Road story. We love that murderous guy that gets dramatically saved. Uh, but I th and that's and that's awesome, awesome. I think you've also got to, as a pastor, you got to realize that for number one, that's God's going to do that. I'm pretty big sovereignty of God guy, so it's like, all right, God's going to do that anyway. Um, I just wonder if I mean, almost think about. I've, I've been to think, okay, did anybody minister? And there's. You, this is kind of the argument from silence, but what about all the families that got that got uh, destroyed by the Apostle Paul before Christ? My, this is just argument from from silence. I don't think Paul just ignored him after he came to Christ. I don't think he just blew him off and like, well, that's in my past. I think uh, as type A eight on the Enneagram as Apostle Paul was, I mean, Jesus changed him dramatically. And you could see even that compassion coming out. I, I'm kind of getting off on a rabbit chase. I would just say our instincts typically have not been amazing as pastors in this. It's kind of new territory. So Mar Marshall and I have gotten a cram course in the last 10 months. Uh, you know, he said earlier, I know what he was saying. You know, we wish we'd never seen. I would just phrase that differently. Um. There's a part of you that wishes you'd never seen it, but you have you can't it's you can't look away. I mean, that's if you're if you're a pastor, you cannot look away from this. It's part of your job. It's part of your calling. This is who this is who you minister to. Both the offender, obviously, but that's but even more so the wounded. I mean, everybody walks in, everybody walks into church. We thought, you know, hey brother, how you doing? 
I'm doing awesome. You know, doesn't look like you're doing awesome. It looks like your life's on fire based on your Facebook page. But all that being said, a lot of people bring in all of this stuff mm-hmm. from sexual abuse to all this kind of stuff. And I, I, for me, it's been helpful. I'll just I'll, last last thing. When I announced and I, our church, I mean, I probably shouldn't say it on this deal, but I'm, most of our church doesn't even know we're Baptists. Um. And I'm sure some listeners will have a hard time with that. That's a different discussion. I say that to say this. Uh, and they don't know the average age of our church is like 34. So there's there's not like, oh, what's going on in the Southern Baptist Convention? But I did mention at the front end this journey and this responsibility that I'd taken on. I just wanted them to pray for me and so forth and so on. I can't tell you how many times in the course of the last nine months in the in the lobby, just meeting people and all that kind of stuff. In, in our case, it's it's always been, I'm out there in a very public setting, but I would see a couple walk up and they would, once I just announced that and asked them to pray for me, it was sort of like it gave permission, all that woundedness that was out there, that was out there before, but just acknowledging I need prayer, big learning curve. I'm not ignoring it. There was a bond that came with just that, you know, they would look, uh, just look at that. Thank you. And they would they would tip you off that that's their story. I grew up in the foster. You know, they would say, I grew up in the foster care system. That's my story. Mm. I grew up in such and they would name it and they would just look at you. And then every once in a while, you'll get notes. You know, thank you. We're praying for you. Now that the media's picked up, you know, the the notes have picked up as well. So I guess this is a pastor. um, I don't think this was your original question. But if you're going to pastor well, you have to be you have to get more fluent in this area because that that is the culture. You can wish we're back in the, you know, whatever, mm. you know, 1800s, which it's not like it wasn't there in the 1800s. It's certainly accelerated. I, I think it's been. I hated what I saw. But I needed to see it. Brothers, I appreciate y'all's time. Um, yeah, have not uh, envied the work you had to do uh, and been thankful for you guys being sacrificial and willing to do it and uh, looking forward to the report in Anaheim. Appreciate you guys being on. Um, be looking again, uh, listeners, look at the website. There also, I'm assuming in the future will be even recommendations of groups that can help you uh, to for pastors and leaders to, to obviously have eyes to see and even think through credible allegations and so forth. And so, um, maybe even need to have some lawyers on to help us think through that, uh, those, those, that terminology as well. But brothers, thank you guys so much. Thank you. Great seeing you. Thank you. Listeners, thanks for listening to the Baptist 21 podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for listening to the Baptist 21 podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at our website, baptist21.com. Also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with others. It would really help us out. If you ever have thoughts or ideas for future interviews, please reach out to us at our email, babbis21 at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening to the podcast.